On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Dr. Jeff Chang about Spurgeon the pastor. So we cover all sorts of topics like what is the material that's been lost that we keep finding from Spurgeon? What's going on there? What's Spurgeon's theology of preaching? What's Spurgeon's theology of the sacraments? What would he think about open, closed, or closed communion? What about open membership? What did Spurgeon think about elders and deacons? How did they function? What was Spurgeon's vision for pastoral ministry and church planting? And so much more. As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, you can just up Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet. We think this one's going to get you thinking. Well, I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I'm one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak. And I'm your co-host, Brandon Askew. And we are a podcast that is dedicated to serious thinking for a serious church. And we want to do that with a couple of intellectual virtues in mind, things like charity, curiosity, critical thinking, cheerful confessionalism. Now, these aren't the only things that we want to prize and we want to, to uphold, but they are some of the main things that we are trying to help encourage both ourselves by repeating it to ourselves and our listeners and those who are uh, within our orbit. We think we need more both careful, critical thinking, but also we need the sort of cheerful, kind uh, approach to that thinking where we treat others with respect. I think we had Matthew Bingham on, I don't know how long ago, if you, if you listen regularly, and he said something to the effect, I want to be hard on ideas and soft on people. And I think that really gets at the idea of what we're trying to do with the podcast is we want to be serious about our ideas, but we want to be generous and loving to other people because they're made in the image of God. So we have a special treat for you today. We have Dr. Jeff Chang to join us again. So Dr. Chang is awesome, and he is doing all sorts of cool stuff with the work of Charles Spurgeon. So if you're a Baptist, you know about Spurgeon. Uh, Everybody loves Spurgeon. I remember in if you're an SBC sort of person, I don't know how many years ago, you know, back when they argued about Calvinism a lot more than they do now, that, that was the hot topic. Everybody still loves Spurgeon. You didn't have to be a Calvinist. You could be an Arminian. Everybody loves Spurgeon. So that's, that's one of the cool things about him is he seems to be sort of a unifying figure that everybody can find value in and really appreciate him. And I mean, it doesn't hurt that he's probably one of the funnest people to read. And, uh, you know, I wish I wish he had a podcast because that would be one of the most listened to podcasts, I'm sure, out there. So before uh, we, we get started, Dr. Chang, give me a little bit of background. Where are you now? And, and then we can get started on talking more about Spurgeon. Yeah, Jordan, Brandon, good to be with you. Thanks for having me on. I, I can't remember when we last talked. Uh, I'm currently uh, at Midwestern Seminary. Um, um, I serve as the curator of the Spurgeon Library. I also teach uh, church history, historical theology. Uh, so here I am in Kansas City, Missouri. Um, and uh, I can't remember when we last talked if I was already in this position or not, because prior to this, I was a pastor in Portland, Oregon for about a decade. Which um, is awesome, because I think we here at the podcast love to have sort of the, the two worlds united. We don't want it to be mm-hmm. just academic. We don't want to be just pastor-centered. We want to have both of them together. So people like you are great models uh, for our listeners to to check out and follow, to learn from. Yeah, thank you for that. Maybe you can tell us a little bit more about the work you guys are doing with some of Spurgeon's material. I know there's some um, stuff that's been 
called Lost Sermons of Spurgeon and some other material that may be new to a lot of people. So can you explain to us what you guys are doing there at Midwestern? Yeah, some exciting stuff. So I think you're referring particularly to the Lost Sermons. Um, you know, that's technically kind of a, as much a marketing <laughs> label as it is in reality. <laughs> you know, the, the Lost Sermons, actually, you know, pe- people knew about these sermons. Uh, these were Spurgeon's earliest preaching notebooks. Uh, sermons that he preached between the ages of 16 and 19, basically. And so this fall, we've actually released the last volume of these lost sermons, uh, volume seven. Uh, In total, these seven volumes contain nine of Spurgeon's earliest kind of sermons, uh, about 400 plus sermons, which is just mind boggling. I mean, he preached these sermons uh, nearly 700 times, like by the age of 19. Uh, So you think about 19 year old, with the like the, the preaching experience of somebody who's been preaching for like over a dozen years, you know, uh, and so you, these sermons are a lot of fun. I mean, you get to learn so much about Spurgeon's theological development, the the, the theological influences in his life, um, his growth as a preacher and a pastor, you know, out there in Water Beach, just preaching faithful sermons, you know, going around in the villages preaching. Um, what I particularly love about the Lost Sermons is that. Uh, you know, first of all, he starts off pretty poorly, like any young teenage preacher. You know, he's just ripping off John Gill commentaries uh, in large measure, though he's sort of adapting them for, for his own audience. Uh, but by the end, he's like a really good preacher. Uh, he, he's His sermons like make a pretty smooth transition into the New Park Street pulpit. Um, and uh, and yet what I love is that he's still preaching on Water Beach. You know, he's just, again, just a village preacher largely unknown, uh, 19 years old, and yet preaching excellent faithful sermons. And I think it's just a, a wonderful picture of uh, kind of becoming excellent in your craft, even before you're a celebrity, right? Uh, even before you've got a big platform. Um, so that's one big project that we've just finished up. Uh, we're starting now a, a new project, Lord willing, it's, it comes out next year in 2024. Uh, totally different, not sermons, but poems. Uh I thought about calling them the lost poems of C.H. Spurgeon, but we, I think we, we're going to drop that lost theme. Uh, I think we're just going to, we're hoping to call it the uh, Pilgrim Prayers. And these, uh, now this was really lost. I mean, this is just a handwritten notebook uh, in our collection uh, of, of poems, of private devotional poems. Uh, and, and as far as we can tell, these belong to Charles Spurgeon, uh, written kind of throughout his life. Uh 186 private devotional poems. Uh, And so you really get a glimpse of Spurgeon in his own walk with the Lord uh, as he reflects on ministry, on on suffering, on life, uh, on marriage, on the gospel. Uh, I'm excited. I mean, this is going to be a great devotional gift to the church. Um, I've got a few friends working on these poems to try to turn them into congregational hymns. Uh, So this is going to be just, uh, I think, uh, just a a really nice... uh, publication um yeah and then and we've got other things down the pipeline also so is there like some sort of like secret catacomb underneath uh midwestern like the uh you know just to go with the theme like the roman catholic equivalent where you've got all these spurgeon you know special volumes that are hidden underneath that no one knows about where where in the world are you finding poems from charles spurgeon (laughs) no that that's always just been in the collection i mean it's uh it's not secret but it is like it's just buried in all the, these books, you know. So if, if you come by the Spurgeon Library, I mean, you'll see 
these beautiful bookcases with shelves and shelves of books. And to be honest, I'm like the curator of the Spurgeon Library. But in terms of actually opening up these bookcases and going through book by book and seeing what we have there, um, I, I would say I've gone through like less than 5% of these books. Um, I, I, I just recently pulled out a volume. David Bebbington was in town and he was asking, hey, okay, let's, let's look around. And he asked, hey, do you have this guy? So we found uh, a copy of Spurgeon's book from this particular author that Bebbington was interested in. And inside there was a letter from the author to Spurgeon. You know, kind of this handwritten letter, say, "Hey, you know, here's a gift," and and and, and it was a, it was a fascinating little piece. So, I mean, there's just treasures like that throughout the Spurgeon Library that we're still discovering today. You know, um, so no secret catacomb, uh, but still, it's all there. <laughs> and we need scholars. We have our own scholars. We're just trying to go through these books and find out what we actually have in here. Very awesome. So, you also have a new volume called Spurgeon the Pastor. Recovering yeah. a Biblical and Theological Vision for Ministry. So I did want to chat a little bit about that. I don't want to chat about the whole thing because I want people to go buy the book. Uh, you don't have to sell your arm or leg for this book. So I know oftentimes we have guests on who they publish a book with Brill, and I say, sorry, you have to give up your firstborn son to be able to afford a copy. Uh, not that, not so in this case. You can go yeah, buy one right. and you can read it. So this is a wonderful volume, and I want to chat about some of it. So Maybe we start with just thinking about Spurgeon's theology of preaching. Since we talked about all those sermons uh, to begin with, that's a natural place to start. I think a lot of people know Spurgeon probably primarily for his preaching. So right. what did he think the act of preaching was? Uh, what what goes into preparation for it? Those sort of questions. Yeah, the, my chapter on Spurgeon's preaching uh, was is the first chapter of my book. And uh, that's for a good reason. You know, when we think about Spurgeon the pastor, we, uh, not surprisingly, we think first and foremost about his preaching ministry. And I think for Spurgeon, I mean, there's a, there's a theological reason for that. You know, uh, we, we clearly see in Scripture that it's God's Word that brings life to His people. Uh, you know, God's Word has always been there at the front, front forefront, calling God's people to life, uh, giving them a way to live. Uh, they, they are distinct from the world insofar as they live according to God's word. This is how they flourish in life. And certainly that, that word being centered on the person of Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross, uh, the, the, the message of the gospel. So, so Spurgeon very much has all of that in mind as he thinks about of his role as a preacher. I mean, he knows that the church will only survive as it builds itself on the word of God. Um, and so Spurgeon saw kind of his primary task as the pastor of the church to be feeding the flock of God from God's word uh, through the preaching of the word. Uh, and, and he gives himself to that. I mean, he's preaching these wonderful, theologically rich, gospel-centered sermons right, for, for 38 years there in London. And he would say that that's what makes the difference. I mean, that's why people were so dramatically moved by his ministry. Uh, he has this wonderful phrase about the, the pulpit being the thermopylae of Christendom, right? that that picture of that battle between the Greeks and the Persians, that, that one place where they had to make their final stand, right, against the Persian invasion. I mean, this is where, as Christians, it's, it's at the pulpit where we make our stand against false teaching, against heresy, uh, where it's, it's whether or not we're faithful in the pulpit, where the church will either stand or fall. Um, so, so he had a very high view of the pulpit. And, 
you know, in terms of, I could talk about his preparation, but he's not a great model for us in terms of his preparation because he's so gifted. Uh, and so he had such a way with words. Uh, you know, he, he described his sermon prep process. It would begin on Saturday evenings at 6 p.m. And uh, he would spend, you know, as long as it took, I guess, to get a sermon ready. Uh, he would study the text. He would consult commentaries. Uh, and eventually he would end the night with, you know, an outline on a half sheet of paper, you know, and this is what he would take into the pulpit. And, and you know, that pulp, that sheet of paper uh, didn't look like much, but it did represent certainly an evening's worth of preparation. But he would say he's always preparing. You know, uh, it, it's really a lifetime of preparation that's encapsulated in that in that sheet of paper. Uh, he would talk about wanting to be extemporaneous, not in his study of the word, but in his words in the pulpit. Um, so he placed a great emphasis on uh, being able to be sort of open to the leading of the Spirit as you're preaching from the pulpit. Um, yeah, and yet he recognized that his students had different giftings, and so he wasn't dogmatic about his own methods and preparations and, and these sorts of things. Uh, yeah, much more to say. I had to preach on short notice this past weekend, because one of our other pastors uh, came down with the flu on Saturday. So I, I made a joke to the congregation, you know, as I was beginning my sermon that I'm, you know, I'm no Spurgeon, so I'm not used to starting, you know, my prep on Saturday night. So ask yes, them to be in prayer for me. I just can't, I get, my heart rate starts to go crazy just thinking about starting sermon prep on a Saturday night, like every oh, week. I mean, that's, so how many yeah. times would he have preached on like an average week? Yeah, on an average week, at least four times. So Sunday morning, Sunday evening, uh, the Monday night prayer meeting, he would give kind of a extemporaneous sort of devotional. And then Thursday night, there would be also another service. So at least those four times. But then on top of that, he's speaking at various meetings. He's preaching at, you know, other chapels. Uh, so, so often as many as 12, 13 times a week. Mm. So I, I was reading through the section in the book here on the ordinances or sacraments, whichever phrase you prefer, I think he would prefer ordinances, but, mm -hmm. um, and I was talking to some of our, some of our buddies in a, in a group text we have. And, uh, our friend Jake got very upset at this idea that he, uh, Spurgeon gave out communion tickets. So when I ask you this question about ordinances, please, uh, put Jake's fears to rest and explain to us why he had to do these, uh, communion tickets. But first, I guess we should start with his view on membership because that, that that is connected to his understanding of baptism in the Lord's Supper. So maybe the first piece of the question is, what was Spurgeon's understanding of church membership? And then part two, um, what was his view on baptism in the Lord's Supper? And then the addendum at the end on um, the question about uh, the communion tickets. Yeah. Yeah, his view of church membership. I mean, he he is a he's a Baptist, so he holds to regenerate church membership. Uh, he believes that uh, members of the local church should give credible evidence of having been born again. Uh, they should have a credible profession of faith. Uh, and and as as Baptists have understood, that doesn't mean we can ever do that perfectly. Uh, and that's why we have church discipline. Uh, but we should all strive for this understanding of the church as being a, a regenerate body. Uh, and therefore, the Lord's Supper should be also marked out by that. You know, the, the Lord's Supper and baptism, the ordinances, um, baptism being sort of, sort of the the entryway into the church, uh, the initiating ordinance of the church, and the Lord's Supper being kind of the ongoing ordinance of the church. Both of these give expression to sort of the boundaries of church membership. 
his in terms of his theology of the sacraments, um, he you know Spurgeon had this kind of mystical side to him. He uh, was so Christocentric in his theology that I mean, and, and that applied to his view of the sacraments. You know, he saw union with Christ as being such an essential part of, of both baptism and the Lord's Supper. It really comes out in his view of the Lord's Supper. I mean, he had such a beautiful emphasis on Christ's communion with the church, you know, at the table. Uh, you know, Michael Haken talks about how Baptists in his day are moving more towards a memorialist view, possibly as a result of the growing Roman Catholicism within the Church of England, uh, possibly also due to sort of the anti-supernaturalism of the day. But Spurgeon kind of remains old school. I mean, when you read his uh, communion sermons and communion devotionals, his emphasis again and again is communion with Christ, uh, Christ's presence with the church at the table. Uh, one of the few hymns that he wrote on the Lord's Supper uh, talks about that, you know, how Christ is present at the table. Um, yeah, in terms of the communion tickets... <laughs> I wonder what what was your friend's objection to to that idea? Why was he so offended by that? Well, I think he's offended by so Jake gets offended about a lot of things. Let's just put that out there. But I think one of the things he's offended by is that Spurgeon his belief in open communion that it wasn't close to um those who had just been baptized by immersion. So that was his first beef. And then the second beef, I guess, was that he if you had to have a ticket, then some people were being I suppose left out and not included uh, in the supper, and yeah. then maybe a third thing that I'm almost sure that Jake would have uh, would would object to, and I'm not even sure how I feel about this, uh, but I do love to just pile on Jake any time we get a chance. Is he encouraged the congregation to take part in communion outside of the the gathered corporate worship? So. Um, I guess that would be, what kind of setting would that have been? Would that have just been uh, a few friends gathered around at, at a home together on a Lord's Day afternoon, or what would that have looked like? Do they have Doritos and like Mountain Dew? <laughs> <laughs> um, those weren't invented yet. <laughs> but uh, no, yeah, those are all good questions. Um, you know, the practice of, of communion tickets uh, traces back to the Scottish Presbyterians. I mean, they use communion tokens as, as a way of, of kind of fencing the table. Uh, I think Spurgeon drew from that practice and his use of tickets. And, and really what's going on there, I mean, partly communion tickets are, uh, as I talk about in my book, a, a, a tool for pastoral care, you know, because mem- all the members of the church were given tickets um, and each ticket had a unique number for the members. So that way they could track which members were attending the Lord's Supper and they would follow up then with members who hadn't been to the Lord's Supper for three consecutive months just to check in on them, you know, so they weren't attending. And sometimes there would be cases where members came on a Lord's Supper Sunday and forgot to bring their communion tickets. And so presumably those members would just observe. They wouldn't participate, which I, I can get why that that's not ideal, right? Um, in, in terms of him being open, open communion, I mean, that's right. He wanted to give expression to the universal church, you know, so he felt conflicted about barring Pedal Baptists from the table. He himself grew up in a Pedal Baptist context, you know, so I'm sure the thought of barring his own parents or his grandfather from the table would have been difficult. But even even there, even as he's trying to even as he opens up the table for Pedal Baptists, I mean he understands that he lives in a in a very 
sort of culturally Christian society, a lot of people have been baptized as infants. And so if you wanted to partake of the table as a paedo-baptist, even then, or even as any visitor, you'd have to come during the week and meet with an elder uh, and basically have like a membership interview with that elder. And the, he would give you a ticket that would expire after a few months. Uh, and then only then could you participate at the table as a visitor. Um, so he's he's sort of fencing the table, not on baptism, but uh, on membership. You know, he would ask, "What member do you? What, what church do you belong to? Why are you taking the Lord's Supper here? When? How long do you want to take it here? When will you be going back home? You know, that sort of thing." Um, so it was just sort of open in that sense. And so on, far, yeah, go, go ahead. ahead. I was just going to follow up on the open communion thing. Is he uh, unique in holding to open communion? Uh, among those who are his contemporaries? Because it seems to me, when I've seen things, it seems like England is much more diverse and has more open proponents, whereas I look at America, and it seems like it's much more uniform in position on that. So is he standing alone by himself, or is that sort of common when, during his time? No, it's it's much more common among the, the British Baptists. Uh, in his day, British Baptists were moving away from closed, more towards open communion. And you're exactly right. American Baptists are still much more holding to closed communion. In fact, oftentimes when, when American pastors, Baptist pastors would go visit Spurgeon, that would be something that they would talk about, would be his communion position. Uh, it's interesting, towards the latter part of his life, Spurgeon seems to express more of an openness towards closed communion, uh, You know, especially after the downgrade controversy. Um, a lot of the American Baptists who remain conservative theologically, they appreciate what Spurgeon has done in the downgrade controversy. Um, and they come and talk to him about his communion, his, his open communion position. And Spurgeon says things like, you know, if I was a pa- if I was pastoring in America, I would have close communion. Um, uh, and he warns his students who are coming to America to pastor. It's like, hey, be ready. If you come, if you go as an open communion guy, you might have to change your position, you know. Um, so, yeah, it's interesting to see. I can't tell if he's actually shifting in his position or if it's just more of a, like, recognizing the American context is different. Um, but it's it's interesting to see that sort of openness to closed communion. Yeah, that is. So maybe we could transition now to talk about the role of elders and deacons at the tabernacle. So with so much going on in one local church, you know, you have thousands of people. We have all kinds of membership interviews to conduct. Then we have these, I guess you could call them, um, it, I, you, you describe them as membership interviews, but for those people who, you know, are maybe from out of town, but they want to participate in the Lord's Supper at the tabernacle, you have those interviews that had to be done, plus all the other just normal everyday ministry that needs to go on. What did that look like for one of the other elders or deacons uh, at the tabernacle? What were their roles? What were the things that they did during the Sunday service and things that they did during the week? Yeah, so when Spurgeon got to the New Park Street Chapel, uh, he was the solo pastor. He had a, a board of deacons, about five deacons working alongside him. The church was a few dozen, so you know that, that was a good size. But very quickly, the church grows to you know 400 to 800 to over 1,000. And, and they're swamped. Uh, and, and so with, within a few years, they, they're just realizing, man, if, if we keep this up, Spurgeon's going to work himself to death, right? Spurgeon himself recognizes this. Uh, and he begins to, I mean, he, he understands the New Testament 
presents us a, a very different model of, of church leadership, right? A, a plurality of elders, uh, deacons working alongside those elders. Uh, and so he begins to teach on that idea. Uh, you, you see him kind of weaving that into his scripture expositions, into his sermon applications, uh, so that by 1859, people in the church are saying, hey, why, why aren't we doing this? Why isn't our structure reflecting this? So in January of 59, the church recognizes the office of elders and appoints kind of the first group of elders to serve alongside Spurgeon. And uh, it's, it's interesting. I mean, they have a pretty strict division of labor. Elders give attention to the spiritual care of the church. Deacons give care to the practical needs of the church. Um, they they were pretty strict about those lanes. I mean, if, if an elder stepped over into church finances, he would probably hear about it from one of the deacons. Um, I, I think it's just so interesting. I, you know, I see when I read about the, the elders and deacons at the Met tab under Spurgeon, I mean, they function pretty equally, uh, both with their own kind of authority and oversight in their own spheres. Uh, you know, in my church, uh, they moved towards a plurality of, of elders, you know, several years ago. And the elders give leadership to the deacons, right, in, in my context, in the Baptist church. Uh, but at the Metab, you really get the sense that elders and deacons are both sort of co-leading the church. You know, um, uh, at, at times the deacons are given prominence, depending on what the church is going through. At times the elders are given prominence, depending on what the church is going through. Um, so I, I just appreciate Spurgeon's challenge to... to to our churches today, you know, um, make sure your deacons are kind of robustly involved and, and really doing that work that they're supposed to do in order to free up the elders to be able to pastor, right? And you, you get the sense of that at the Met Tab. Um, the elders are, are doing visitation, teaching, pastoral care, those kinds of things. Uh, and deacons are giving attention to finances, building, all the practical work that comes from so- the church. So at its height of, of membership, what would the the number of elders and deacons have looked like? And did they have, so for instance, was there something built into, um, you know, the way that the written documents of their church where, you know, when we reach this threshold, this number of members that we're going to add a deacon or add an elder, or was it just when they made that first change, they had a dozen or so, and then it just remained that way? Yeah, when they first made that change, there were five deacons and about 10 elders, I think. Uh, I think at its peak, I counted about 30 elders at, at its height and, you know, about a dozen to 15 deacons um, serving the church. But that's, you know, even when the church is four or 5,000 people. Uh, so it's not proportionate to the growth, you know. So for whatever reason, Spurgeon just hovered around 25, 30 elders at the most, that seemed to be kind of as much as he could sort of manage. Um, yeah, I, I haven't read anything in terms of him thinking about the number of elders. It seems like he emphasizes qualifications more than anything else. So one thing I'd like you to sort of, I know you can't do this perfectly because Spurgeon's not alive, but if Spurgeon were alive today in this environment, and we took his vision for pastoral ministry, for training pastors, for church planting, what do you think that would look like? What advice would he give to seminaries, to churches, to parachurch institutions that are training and sending missionaries? I mean, what's his vision going to look like if he's transplanted to today's climate in your best estimation? 
Mm-hmm. I mean, if I had to guess, the, the thing that stands out to me most about all those things concerning Spurgeon would be how rooted in the local church he is. So in terms of pastoral training, I mean, it it arose out of his his ministry in the local church. You know, he, as he was preaching, young men were being converted, young men were being called to serve, and they began to gain a sense of calling, and, and so Spurgeon trained them, right? And so um, it, it was kind of an overflow of of his call to 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 preach and to disciple uh naturally as he did that you know other young men in particular began to gain a a sense of calling you know to also want to preach to follow his example um and so he's not you know outsourcing the work of pastoral training to to the local baptist colleges but he's doing it in the context of the local church i think if spurgeon were here in kansas city you know in, in a city where there is another local seminary uh, he would be glad to partner with that seminary, you know, especially when it comes to theological training. That that seminary would need to be robustly Calvinistic uh, and evangelical. Um, he wouldn't send his students anywhere else. Uh, but he would also want to look to provide some some ecclesiological and pastoral kind of mentoring in the context of a local church. Um, yeah, as far as church planning, again, I mean, he... He appreciated parachurch organizations. He appreciated missions sending organizations. Uh, but he also saw, you know, in some contexts, the church is sufficient for all those things. And so as far as church planting, because of the size of his church, I mean, they were able to be kind of an engine for church planting. So I would imagine if he has a large enough church in our modern day, he would be um, encouraging guys to go out and begin sharing the gospel and if there are groups of members who live in a region where there is no strong gospel witness, um, he would be encouraging them to plant out there. Uh, yeah, it, and all of that would be radiating out of the, the ministry of, of the local church. You know, it, it would be very much um, this idea that churches plant churches, you know, and uh, I think he would be promoting that. Um, yeah. One of the temptations, I think, is for a young pastor when you're reading through a book like this, and you know you're reading about this this figure that we you know as as, as Baptist as Reformed Baptist Calvinistic Baptist however you want to describe it you know this is a man that we look to we we see he had a very successful ministry he was a great preacher and here's how he did X Y Z here's how he did baptism here's how he did the Lord's Supper here's how he structured his service and the temptation is okay well I need to go into my church and I need to do things exactly the way that Spurgeon did it. Well, of course, um, our church is not like Spurgeon church and we're not Spurgeon. So what would you say is the best way for a young pastor to read a book like this and some pitfalls that maybe they can avoid, um, by trying to do too much too fast, or maybe trying to, you know, pick up exactly what Spurgeon did and just drop it in their current context. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, if, if you try to do, if you try to implement communion tickets, Next week, you might get fired from your church, right? I, I would not advise that. Uh, yeah, the, in writing this book, that I actually wanted to avoid that pitfall very much. This is not meant to be a, a handbook, you know, for like next, like a step-by-step guide to successful ministry. That's not at all it. And, and Spurgeon would, would sort of abhor that idea that we could manufacture success by, you know, following man-made steps. Uh, what, I, what I particularly wanted to highlight in the book was that, the things that Spurgeon was doing were actually rooted in, in biblical and theological convictions, right? Convictions that arose from scripture, 
theological convictions about the church and what it is and, and what the pastoral what pastoral ministry is. Uh, and and therefore the things that he was doing uh, were his attempts to be faithful to those convictions. Um, and so uh, I think in our day we need to hold fast to to similar convictions uh, as Baptists, you know, we'll find a lot of commonality with Spurgeon, but even for those who come from the Reformed tradition, you know, the broader Reformed tradition or, or even beyond, uh, I think there are convictions there that will resonate. Um, but whatever our biblical convictions are, we want to um, let those truths guide us, you know, rather than merely the pragmatic idea of, hey, I want to I want to have a large church. You know, I want to be successful. Um, if we aim at those things, I think we, we will we will fail ultimately uh, at, at what God calls us to. Uh, so, so yeah, for, for the young pastor who reads this book, man, I want you most of all to be impressed and encouraged by Spurgeon's pursuit of faithfulness as a pastor. Um, you know, preach the word faithfully, preach the gospel in all of its power and simplicity. Pray, you know, with your congregation. Call your congregation to pray with you. And persevere, right? Don't, don't give way to the fads of our culture and our day, um, but, but remain faithful as a pastor of the gospel, uh, yeah, and in that, I think we can be encouraged by Spurgeon's example, not that we would try to replicate his results, but try to imitate his faithfulness. That's really good. So, Dr. Chang, this has been awesome, and I want to encourage everybody who's listening. We've got a lot of theological nerds who listen, who are in school or planning to go to school or or want to do further secondary education. You heard Dr. Chang. You heard what he said about the Spurgeon Library. He's gone through like 5% of that thing, and they're finding all sorts of material. We need more people who want to devote their time and their resources to recovering these sort of resources. So you should, if you're interested in that sort of thing, you should probably go pay a visit to Midwestern. Go find Dr. Chang and say, show me the Spurgeon Library in the archive. I want to get started. I want to roll up my sleeves I want to be a part of this recovery to help resource all the Baptists around the globe to have great resources. So we've got all sorts of resources that have been lost that we just don't have access to anymore. And we need to have more people who are willing to put in that work to, to make it accessible for both pastors and our lay members. I mean, I think Spurgeon's, Spurgeon's one of those few that can really cross the divide. You know, we can recover some people who appeal to one or more one group more than the other, but I feel like Spurgeon, man, he, he can hit everybody. So what better way to spend your time uh, than to be researching somebody like Spurgeon? So you should go check out the stuff that's going on at Midwestern uh, along with Dr. Chang. So thanks for doing this with us. And again, I'll, I'll put the links to these books in the show notes, and I'll try to remember whenever these poems come out to go back and add a link to that. So if you're a new listener at this point in the future and you're listening to it now and that's available, I'll try to have a link there retroactively added whenever that's available so you can click on it and go find a copy of that as well. So everybody's been listening. Thanks uh, for taking the time to do this. We really appreciate your support. And as you know, you've been listening to the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet. And we'll talk to you guys soon. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. 
And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.